Thank you for being patient with me, folks. Welcome to 2022, our first episode of the Scarlet Thread Society for the year. As always, we need to go over our safety precautions for the evening. Lock your doors, close your windows, cover your mirrors, maybe have a little tobacco with me, and settle in. The wild ride starts now. Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society, everybody. We've got a real special treat for you tonight. A first-timer, someone I've been looking forward to talking to for a very long time, and he's brought with him a unique thesis that I think really cuts into a lot of what I want to be doing here in the year of 2022, and that is spending a little bit less time on the mystic and a little bit more time on the seedy underbelly of America's 20th century. So, without any further jabbering on my part, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, buddy? First, uh, I wanted to say thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to get on here and share some thoughts with your audience about um, something that I don't think a lot of people have really thought about when it comes to the society that they live in. Uh, Yeah, they haven't yet. They will be when we're done. Well, I hope they will. Uh, so a little bit about me. My name's Mike. Um, just a regular guy from Jersey. I've always been kind of an amateur historian of the American underworld. Uh, I have a pretty strong corporate background, went to a pretty good business school. Um, so I feel like I can really take this topic apart kind of from both levels. And that's what I'm hoping to do here with your audience. That sounds like an absolute plan to me. So Before we get into the nitty-gritty here, what is the primary pitch? What are we talking about tonight? Okay, so what we're talking about here is the takeover bank robbery, and more specifically, the decline of the takeover bank robbery, why these things don't happen in America anymore. America is kind of a distinct place from the rest of the world in that our culture is very precarious, but it's also extremely aspirational. So for a long period of time, roughly from about middle post-Civil War, to end of the 90s, early 2000s, this combination of factors along with just the geographical scope of the country created a unique set of circumstances where a couple of guys, regular guys, could achieve localized fire, communications, and maneuver superiority over law enforcement. The ability to execute a takeover, and then, and then this is the most important part, and then be able to disappear with your money provided a potent set of incentives for the most intelligent and violent subset of the American underclass. Through a combination of policy tools, structural forces, fortification of the nascent middle class, the American system no longer creates the supply or the demand factors behind high incident banditry. What do you think about that? I think that that is a wonderful start. I think that I uh, can see that lining up with a lot of things I believe and I think that's a good pitch for what we're going to be doing here. So I think you're on to something. All right. So I want to start with a question then. Okay. What's the What's the first movie you remember seeing that had bank robbery in it? Oh, gosh. There's too many, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm almost treating this like a gotcha. I'm reaching out for one in an animated movie I might have forgotten about. That- there is no gotcha. The, the point is, is that you look in any media property, whether that's a video game like Max Payne series, whether that's, um, you know, the old Westerns, 
whether that's the town with Ben Affleck, whether that's um, whether that's Inside Man with Spike Lee, which is a very interesting take on the whole phenomenon. Bank robberies are are just kind of part and parcel of the American culture. It inherently something resonates about the idea of going into a bank and taking the money and getting out with the American public. And there's a lot of reasons for this. Number one, I talked about, you know, the precarious and the aspirational nature of America. Number two, nobody trusts banks here. No, and they shouldn't, frankly. No, no, they, they should not. Number three, there is this prevailing sense that it's not your money that they're stealing. It's the bank's money, that the bank is as much an adversary as the criminal underclass is. And I want to talk through some examples. And I think a great place to start is in the post-Civil War era. Um, If if you're ready, we'll jump right in. I'm ready to go. Okay, so you, you got a couple big themes in the Civil War or after the Civil War ends. So number one, you got a lot of guys that got demobbed with really no plan. So you look at it, you have these guys that are used to dealing in violence. And specifically, you have a lot of guys used to the independent application of violence outside of formal command structure. I think you already kind of know who I'm going to be talking about first. Yeah. So not to spoil it for the audience or anything, but would you happen to be talking about the James gang, perhaps? That is exactly who I'm talking about. So the James gang is a bunch of former Confederate guerrillas that get together. And they're in Missouri post-Civil War. A lot of bad things are happening in Missouri. A lot of violence. um, And more importantly, Eastern Capital is starting to move west, right? So this is a a huge tension you have between the local kind of embedded Confederates and then the rest of the the power structure that's kind of coalescing around big Eastern Capital. Taking a step back, the Civil War can roughly be seen through the lens, and this is very simplistic, of Eastern capital versus the rest of the country for the takeover. Who gets to decide the future of the American West? Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. So in this prospect of tension, you have a lot of people losing their farms. You have a lot of people, um, you know, with, with nothing to do, no way to get ahead. Um, you know, in the background, you also have the Gilded Age, the development of the railroads. So unimaginable wealth is being extracted from these localities in the rural West and then taken back to the East. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one key plank of why you start to see these outlaws like the James gang uh, develop. And I was talking earlier about how the ability to disappear was really key, right? Absolutely. It's It's pretty easy to roll up on a target. That's not expecting that you're coming in, take it over. Right. But then you got to get away, right? And then you got to have people looking after, or then you're going to have people looking for you, right? Yeah, of course. You know, uh, whether it be a posse, whether it be local Leos, like typically sheriffs or eventually marshal service, people will be looking for you. Exactly. So what do the James gang have? The James gang have an entire network of Confederate sympathizers from their old guerrilla days, not to mention an entire network of local sympathizers because they know that most of the money that's being sold, that, that was being stolen, is getting taken getting taken out of their communities and sent to the East. So this is before you have all types of banking reform, all types of legislative land use reform, um, where 
the ability by Eastern capital to predate on the local settlers who had been, you know, in these lands for decades, even longer in a lot of cases. Uh, so their ability to extract that wealth at the expense of the local people is really a key plank in the public support that happens. Why should these people care about the bank when it's just a holding company for the whatever railroads in town, right? That's exactly it. Until all of a sudden it isn't. So you take take the entire career of the James gang. I don't want to get into the whole facts and features because we're here to kind of talk about the zeitgeist more than we are any specific set of incidents. But there are going to be a couple that I want to highlight, and this is the one. So what do the James gang do? What's their biggest mistake that they make? Oh, gosh. Uh, I suppose letting the fame go to their head, perhaps. I know they were Not very just well that. known even in their own time. Not just that. As this gang of mobbed up ex-Confederate guerrillas, they decide they want to go north and hit Yankees. Now, look at where Missouri is versus look at where the eastern capital is actually at, right? So they go north to a little town called Northfield, Minnesota. What happens in Northfield, Minnesota is this is not an eastern bank that's affiliated with the railroads. This is a true community bank, right? And so what do the people of Northfield do? They don't back down. They don't let the James gang achieve fire superiority over them. They surround the bank and they start shooting out with it and they start shooting it out with the gang end up killing a couple of their members, uh, you know, just real big, violent blow up. And we're going to see this time and again, as these, as these takeover groups kind of fracture, often it's at the first time that they meet armed and organized resistance. Now, stop me right now if this is getting ahead of you a little too much here, but is it curious to you as it's curious to me? Just how many of these gangs do end up actually starting their own self-destruction after trips into Minnesota, of all places? Because the James gang isn't the only one either. They're not. So, again, you're, you're looking at, I think, the phenomenon that you're looking at is the outsider versus the community, right? Yeah. So when these yep. guys um, are, getting into, are getting into these robberies... They're robbing bad actors or at least perceived bad actors within their own communities, right? So when they get stopped, and you see the same thing that happens to the Dalton gang in Coffeyville, Kansas. Uh, so the Daltons are about 20 years after the James gang. And these guys grew up on a diet of Jesse James uh, dime store novels. So this is another big thing uh, that goes into the whole phenomenon of takeover banditry. So much of it is media inspired after the first wave. You got guys, you know, really dead enders, guys with no better ideas. You know, maybe they don't know how to use guns. Maybe they don't know how you ride horses. Typically, a takeover crew will form around one guy who's particularly intelligent and particularly violent, right? And so he'll gather around hangers on, family members, right? And you got to look at who planted the idea in their head, right? The media have been the biggest cheerleaders of bank robbers throughout the history of American crime and criminology. And, you know, it starts before Jesse James is even dead. They're writing dime store novels about him, right? Yeah, those Western novels, people don't, I think, necessarily realize that these tales were coming out concurrently with the events themselves. Yeah. You know, it's uh, basically exactly. straight to TV movies. It's prestige TV 
the equivalent for that era. A hundred percent. Now, what else do you have going on in the background? <laughs> you have this whole phenomenon called range wars. You have all these large corporations, large cattle corporations, amalgamating power, seizing land. So that's another kind of plank in why a lot of people are, are not only okay with this, but willing to give these guys horses, willing to give these guys guns, willing to shelter them, right? Yeah, I'd have to fact check it, but I believe I recall reading that at one point, something like up to 60 plus percent of Texas was consolidated within just a few hundred ranches. These were truly massive operations. Exactly. That's that's exactly it. And, you know, again, you don't have a lot of the legal protections that, that we enjoy. You know, you have compromised local authorities working with these ranchers to use things like eminent domain to seize people's land. Whereas nowadays, you know, if the government takes your land to build a highway, you're going to get compensated at pretty close to market value. I'm not saying the process is perfect. I'm not saying the process doesn't get abused. Obviously, we all know that that's not the case. Uh, But back in the day, they would just foreclose on your mortgage under some term or condition that you didn't even know applied, right? And then what is your local what is your local government official doing? He's turning around and he's selling it to, you know, companies like the Wyoming Stock Association, Stock Growers Association. So and more often than not for a cut of the action himself, right? Exactly. I know that was a very common trick, uh, specifically with the railroads, and I'm presuming others, where they would straight up compensate politicians in stock. Exactly. So you have all of these class tensions, right, that are kind of simmering under the surface. And in a lot of ways, I think many Americans resonate with the outlaws because they're doing something that they're either dispositionally um, or, you know, just circumstantially prohibited from doing. You know, these are the guys without families. These are the guys off, you know, again, not exclusively, but often without families without anything to lose they're coming from you know recent immigrants uh germans irish poles uh, former habsburg imperial subjects um really they're drawing from the american underclass right drawing from the cowboys uh the dirt farmers things of that nature people who for economic reasons haven't been able to get their roots down yet exactly exactly so all of this kind of starts to end towards the end of the of the 19th century until you get another flare up. So uh Paz anything else that we want to say uh, on the kind of western swing of bank robbery um I I think we've established kind of the the cultural groundswell we've established some of the tensions that are going on we've established a little bit of the typology of the type of guys who who get into this kind of work. Well, I will reverse that with a question right back to you. I've got some weird stuff I want to get into, and I want to know if you'd like to save that towards the end and take it all then, you know, sort of keep your rhythm, or if you want to take it chunk by chunk, scene by scene. Uh, I think scene by scene will be fun, and then we can bring it all together. Okay. So I suppose there's one thing I want to throw at you, and this one's coming way out of left field, super speculative. But just how much law enforcement infiltration do you think was possible, feasible, or real in this era? 
because I've heard some very interesting stories about Butch and Sundance and the Secret Service, who at the time did a lot of this financial crime stuff. So that's a great question. So a lot of the infiltration doesn't actually come from officials, right? Because what you have to remember about law enforcement up until the next era that we're going to get into is law enforcement is inherently a local phenomenon. This is still the era of local sheriffs and posses drawn from the kind of the same drawing pool, maybe a little, a little bit more invested in the community, but they're drawing from the same types of guys, military age men, but smallholders, cowboys, right? So those are the guys that are forming the posses. They're the sheriff's deputies. They're the marshal's deputies, except for one group. And I think you know where I'm going with this, the Pinkertons. Of right? course. So, so this brings in another interesting kind of nar- part of the narrative is corporate America. This is like corporate America first waving their flag on the scene to say, hey, we're, we're a big actor here, right? We're going to defend our own patch. Because you look at kind of the drive towards empowering these federal marshals, uh, giving them manpower, giving them, you know, weaponry, for lack of a better word. Federal government is poor and broke for most of the 19th century. Uh, Federal government budget basically being the War Department plus some token stuff here and there, right? This is really before the era of the federal bureaucracy. So you have this group of the Pinkertons who are effectively the first public-private partnership to use a George W. Bushism. And they're the ones that are really doing the infiltration so much as it happens, right? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the early beginnings of private security in America. And you have these Pinkertons that are working to infiltrate these gangs. You have these Pinkertons that are advising the railroads on how to to route the trains, what type of guard patterns to run, you know, where to put the cash car within the confines of a train, um, how to run the schedules, right? Um, Identifying the vulnerabilities kind of within that value chain, right? Of where can they be hit? This is when you see the development of time locks. Um, Things like that start to really come in. You have um, regularized kind of escorted shipments of cash as opposed to Wells Fargo, right? Wells Fargo is another interesting one that we'll get to. Um, really a very interesting time, right? In that you start to see a couple of the threads start to really express themselves on both sides. The guys are getting more violent and their adversaries are getting better. I rambled a little bit there. No, that's totally fine. Because as you were saying, I think the Pinkertons are an extremely important component of this. And it's that sort of, it speaks to, like you said, that membrane between both the federal government, capital, and nominally private enterprises, where you then have this sort of uh, collusive milieu that develops really basically instantly. Because you're right that the Pinkertons didn't start rising to power until then, but they'd already existed in some capacity for a good amount of time by the time these Western robberies are really making themselves known and becoming a capital T thing. Exactly. So let's take a little bit of a detour into banking. Banking starts to really take over the United States with the closing of the frontier and the development of oil. 
um, and the kind of formalization of railroad transportation, the consolidation of railroad transportation towards the end of the Gilded Age, culminating in the Federal Reserve in 1913. Then we're going to take a little bit of a break uh, <laughs> because you have World War One. That kind of puts a big wrench into everything. Everybody in America, at least for the first couple of years, is just focusing on how do we send as much war material as possible under as much predatory of terms as we can get these idiot Europeans to agree to. And to your point, the sort of social class that both pro and anti-bank robbing operations draw from are also eventually being sent overseas, whether it be as volunteers or eventually as uh, Pershing's liberatory army. Exactly. So you start to see also the development of the security state alongside the kind of truly entrenching of Eastern merchant capital um, as the being the ones in the driver's seat of the destiny of the ship that is the United States of America. So after we go through our war interlude, what do we have? We have the Roaring Twenties. Economy's great. America's largely unhurt. A lot of money slushing through the economy, right? What do you also have? You have the development of the automobile, which starts to make America a little bit smaller than it used to be. But you don't really have great roads. Um, you know, the the deployment of the automobile is largely uneven. Um, America being a much less centrally governed place both then and now than the rest of the world. But specifically back then, the hand of government didn't often extend very far outside of city limits, outside of town lines. And as much as you could get together a posse and shoot, shoot a bank robber over the county line and just drag him back across the other side, there's not that kind of connection layer, right? So what do you have? You have a nascent opportunity for the criminal underclass to really strike back and to really express themselves. So this is also before the National Firearms Act. You used to be able to walk into a Sears Roebuck or even go into a catalog and order a Thompson submachine gun, a Browning automatic rifle. Better so, days, better days. <laughs> man after my own heart. So again, you have the ability to achieve fire superiority over local law enforcement. Local law enforcement had Half of them are using cult single action armies. Imagine yeah. go. It's a uh, useful context for anyone who doesn't know in the audience. If you're not as into this stuff as Mike and I are, you will be possibly shocked to realize that cops did not have armories back then like they do now. And in fact, it's a result of this next episode that they started to develop them. Exactly. You know, they didn't have rifles unless they were bringing their hunting rifle from home themselves. They didn't have these really nice, high-quality armaments. They didn't usually need them. Exactly, because most criminals in the criminal underclass were using knives. They were using Ivor Johnson pocket revolvers until you start to see the motor bandits, guys who are gunned up, robbing National Guard armories to get to the BARs. Um, you know, deploying Maxim machine guns in some cases, stolen out of National Guard armories, but they didn't even have to steal them. You could go and buy all this stuff, right? So you do that, you get yourself a nice Ford Flathead V8, you head over a couple counties when you know that there's a bank, get a couple of your buddies together, case the joint a little bit, you go in, take it over, and you're out before the sheriff can even get a posse together. He's chasing you and horses. 
you're in a 32 Model A. Who do you think is going to win that foot race? Well, that's an easy one. And to your point about these being functionally smashing grabs, in a lot of instances, there's not even any reason to believe these groups would case the joint. You know, they'd spend 10 minutes making sure there weren't too many people inside. They'd blow in, blow out, and count on, like you said, those Fords to get them out of trouble before the uh, Model A's or Model T's could catch up. Exactly. So you have the ability and the willingness on the part of the American criminal underclass to bring technology in to their planning, to bring technology as a force multiplier against a system that they believe has wronged them. And what do you have in 1929? And what does this change things? You've got the Great Collapse and the Great Depression beginning. So again, you're creating another type of thing like right after the Civil War. You're creating an environment where a lot of people feel abused, a lot of people feel wronged, a lot of people lost their life savings due to, again, predatory Eastern capital. Um, I think we all know who I'm talking about, your J.P. Morgans, guys of that nature. The usual suspects. The usual suspects, indeed. So what do you have now? Now you have that potent mix, right? And that potent mix of guys who are willing and able to deploy violence strategically against targets that they know aren't on anybody's Christmas card list, right? And guess guess again what comes into play. And this is where I think you and I are going to have a little bit of fun. Media. The media. Radio dramas. Movies. Talkie pictures. All of this is going on concurrently. The first movie, Scarface, was made in the 1930s, while Al Capone was still out on the streets before he got arrested for tax evasion. So inherently, you have this really fertile mix, really volatile mix, where the public is well and truly gunned up. They well and truly are pissed off at the system. Um, And they have a nascent support layer informal society that's willing to hide them that's willing to take their money that's willing to you know support the guys who lit fire to a bunch of mortgage records while they were you know busy blowing the wall and pocketing all the cash right empty right. the safe deposit boxes yeah again this is not to say bank robbers are the good guys however um you have a major component of the american public that is siding with these guys at least situationally for their own benefit right Yeah, to the extent that I know there's certain cases where out-and-out civilians would just straight up offer safe houses to Bonnie and Clyde specifically, and I'm sure it happened in other instances as well with other gangs. Exactly. You know, John Dillinger not only being public enemy number one, but also being arguably the biggest celebrity in America, behind maybe Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, guys like that. But how many people outside of New York, outside of Philadelphia, outside of Boston really knew who those guys were versus pretty much everybody knew who John Dillinger was? Right. His story was the front page news in your town. Exactly. So you have a national media market, but not quite a national law enforcement yet, but it's coming. It's coming under a guy named J. Edgar Hoover, who is one of the more interesting characters in American history. That's one way to put it, I think. (laughs) 
So what do we have that's kind of occurring in parallel slightly behind? You have the development of the nationwide, uh, the National Bureau of Investigation, right? Soon to become the Federal Bureau of Investigation. J. Edgar Hoover takes over in 1924, right? So the FBI is really starting to, starting to take notice of these motorized bandits, these guys that are crossing state lines to rob banks, right? You didn't really have the cohesive understanding of one country that was baked into every action of the system, right? That you do now, right? Absolutely. You know, there was a sort of cultural understanding that still existed at that time that these states were states unto themselves. Exactly. So pretty much anything outside of foreign policy, international trade was largely left to the states, states being laboratories of democracy, right? That, that all starts to change with the Great Depression. The Great Depression, you actually see the system respond to criticism and respond to incentives. A lot of people who had lost, their, lost all their money, lost their homes due to the Depression. FDR, um, again, another very interesting character, um, really laid the groundwork for the post-war settlement, right, where the American middle class bought in to the project, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can argue about whether or not they should have, but they did. Absolutely. Uh, so you have things like the establishment of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You have things like the 1933 Banking Act, also known as Glass-Steagall, which separated um, you know your standard commercial banking, what, what we would understand as retail banking today, mortgages, savings accounts, CDs, um, from more speculative bank activities, things like investment banking, uh, securities underwriting, things like that. So what does that do? That combined with the National Firearms Act, that hits these guys kind of on both levels, right? All of a sudden, you can't walk into your average hardware store with a couple hundred bucks and, and end up with fire superiority over pretty much anything other than West Point, right? right. Can't do that anymore. And what do you have? You have this nascent security state that's developing under the FBI, largely in response to the mobility and just the ability to just take down these banks, take them down for a lot of money, and then disappear, right? The FBI never stops a bank robbery in progress, or or if they do, it's by accident. Um, and this is borne out in their history. The FBI, again, what does the I stand for? Investigation, which means Whatever they're looking at has already happened. So this is where it starts to really become true of they have to be good all the time. We only have to be lucky once. That's an old cop trope. But now is really when, now meaning the 1930s, is really when that starts to be true and a truly unassailable kind of fact of the American criminal landscape. You cannot necessarily get away with the money if enough people have seen your face. They have the ability to put your face in every bank and every post office in the country within a week or two. So you have to really disappear. You can't keep hitting these banks on high tempo, right? So you have these two undercurrents, and you also have, again, the banks themselves are stepping up, stepping up to protect their own security. Um, you're looking at the development of things like wire, banking by wire, right? 
That's because cash is dangerous to hold. Everybody knows this. Yeah, and to a degree, that's, of course, the entire point of banks in the first place, because it is dangerous to hold the cash. Exactly. So, again, we have another war interlude, right? So, like you said earlier, both sides of, of this equation are kind of doing other things, right? They're either working in the factories, they're either, um, you know, out going to Europe, out going to fight the Japanese, uh, they are working in victory gardens. You know, th- there's just too much going on. Um, and a lot of the incentives for these guys to rob banks are gone. A lot of their ability to blend into their communities is gone because nobody's going to take a federal rap to hide a bank robber, especially when they know that the bank can't screw them, for lack of a better word, right? So to kind of emphasize that point a little bit here, I think might be useful. It's also in this period towards the end of the depression era. And as these gangs are all getting rolled up, that you start to see federal criminal charges become a thing for these sort of peasant class criminals in the first place. Because prior to that, the only way to catch a federal charge for anything was to be a white collar guy who pissed off a senator the wrong way. As opposed to now where, oh, you thought you could dance across the state line and get away from it? Yeah, actually, you probably could until the FBI finally gets you the third time you try it. Exactly. Uh, You also, for lack of a better word, you don't have... um, I lost my train of thought. One second. You don't have the ability to blend into your community anymore because you're starting to see the community buy into the larger American project. Um, You're starting to see trade unions really start to improve the lots of the working class, right? You're starting to see. And uh, this is a big thing of of just frankly, the genius of FDR and, and the GI Bill. Um, I know he was dead by the time it passed, but World War II was the largest anti-poverty measure that had ever been conducted in the history of the United States, and it's also the most successful, right? You have the war between the factory jobs, between the the Montgomery GI Bill, um, you know, between just my grandfather, um, when he came back from the war, I'm not, not going to say what town, uh, but, you know, the mayor came and patted him on the back and offered him a job as a cop. My grandfather didn't take it because he liked being an iron worker. But there were a lot of guys that did, right? Yeah, plenty of instances of things like that. Exactly. So you have the buy-in, right? And what you also have, and this is funny to me, in that the media kind of keeps celebrating these guys, right? But you also have the Hollywood Board of Standards, right? So while these guys are being, you know, the focus of all the movies, while the the crooks are, you know, they're not as celebrated as they used to be, because you start to see Hollywood, again, really get integrated into the broader American power structure. Not that the media wasn't, but the power of radio media, the power of early TV, the power of, you know, again, talking television, talking pictures, um, to really... Drive the point. Of, drive the point that crime doesn't pay home, right? 
Yeah, so on that note, it's worth uh, just mentioning in passing. We don't need to discuss this. But the entirety of human history really is a cycle of centralizing pressure driven by communication technology. And this period of history is a really interesting point to observe just that happening because it improved in such leaps and bounds. You know, this was the first real radical period of development in communication technology. Some people might say since the telegram, I'd say going back to even the printing press, the next great leap forward. And you see a lot of shifting incentives and changing centralizing pressures because of it. Exactly. So even if you have the fastest modified, you know, 43 Willie's Coupe um, with the best, with the best, uh, best parts money can buy hot rotted out right you can't outrun the radio as they say right so what happens to bank robbers they still happen until you come to the next wave and the next wave is when things fall apart and to introduce kind of one of the theses that we haven't talked about why it all comes back to california Bank robbery is pretty much the exclusive focus of hardened criminals, uh, bankrupt dreamers, idiots, charlatans, um, glory hounds, until you get to the 60s and the 70s. Little group. Uh, a couple groups that I want to highlight. So pe- a lot of people like to think that the Weather Underground robbed banks. Weather Underground didn't do hardly anything at all. Weather Underground. <laughs> and this is this is pretty funny. Weather Underground's biggest death hole was when they blew themselves up because they didn't know how to make bombs. Absolute classic. <laughs> Basically blew out an entire townhouse in, what was it? Was it uh, Philly or D.C.? Uh, this was in New York, actually, in, in the New village. New York, okay. Yeah. So, meanwhile, while the Weather Underground is getting all the headlines, this little group again in New York. <laughs> and And this is a real funny one. So the New York Panthers versus the Bay Area Black Panthers had a borderline civil war fought between one another over the New York Panthers being more violent, more hardcore. New York Black Panthers form a group called the Black Liberation Army. The Black Liberation Army robs somewhere between 10 and 20 banks between the years of 1970 and 1973 before the last of them are put down. Which so basically the, makes them the most prolific bank robbers in U.S. history at that point then, right? I don't think Dillinger ever got to 20, did he? He did not. Not not that I can tell. Uh, so, again, th- this is re- it's all really funny to me because you have Elrich Cleaver, you have the West Coast Panthers, you know, for lack of a better word, threatening um, – threatening to assassinate and start a civil war within the nascent black guerrilla struggle. Uh, you know, all this is happening in the context of society really starting to strain at the edges, the post-war settlement really starting to pull itself apart. Right. So the black liberation army flames out. Most of their guys get killed or imprisoned until you have kind of this group that's really on the fringes of the weather underground and various, um, various other quote-unquote Marxist revolutionary groups called the Symbionese Liberation Army. And for whatever you could say about the Weather Underground being 
you know, a bunch of rich kid amateurs playing at Revolution. The SLA were simultaneously more serious, more dedicated, and more incompetent and ineffective <laughs> than the weathermen ever were. So you have this inherent tension between their willingness to use violence and their willingness to, you know, really put in the work of armed struggle. <laughs> And they're led by this absolute moron guy by the name of Sin Q. Hold on, let me get his real name here. And while you look that up quick, you know, there's no disputing the fact that this guy was a terrible moron of the highest proportions, but he was also a psychopath of the highest proportions, too. Perhaps not in a deranged sense, but in a truly... This guy, he was his own entire universe, as was his struggle sort of deal exactly you know, so functionally a cult leader exactly so this guy's real name is donald defreeze right donald defreeze is just for lack of a better word um just purely a loser ends up bouncing around from petty crime to petty crime um you know never even joined a gang in prison was not part of you know the nascent west coast uh, prison radicalization, right? Not a part of what would become the black gorilla family, right? Um, just this guy was quite simply a loser until he gets found by a couple of white radicals who are essentially looking for a core around which to form, uh, around which to form an armed struggle group, right? So DeFreeze adopts the name Field Marshal Sinkyu. <laughs> you know, what else, whatever else you can say about him and these guys in general, I just want to state for the record that Field Marshal really is a banger of a title, though. Oh, it's, it's fantastic, isn't it? So <laughs> I'm just reading some of this and I'm just laughing about just how stupid some of these guys were. So... At this point, the SLA is kind of struggling for, kind of struggling for a purpose, struggling to figure out what the cause is. They're doing petty actions. They're planning bombs. You know, they failed at a bank robbery. They barely got any money out of it. Um, where it really gets interesting is in their one action that they are, for which they are remembered, and that's the kidnapping. Of Patty Hearst. Paz, you want to tell us a little bit about Patty Hearst? Well, so just how much is relevant to where you want to go with this? You know, obviously she was a uh, well-to-do heiress who was eventually, as you say, kidnapped by these people. And this is right around the time that the whole, the brainwashing craze itself was about over by now. But this was exactly the time we started to get information about just what had happened during the 50s and the 60s and what the intelligentsia and the glowies had been up to. And so you see this shocking shift in her personality that gets written off as Stockholm Syndrome after she is abused by this uh, terrorist front group without a real cause to their name, a bunch of freewheeling radicals. So funny you should mention that. So let's just talk a little bit about about what Patty Hearst claimed. So Patty Hearst claimed that she was essentially subjected to, uh, you know, the next level of 
crit self crit, um, which the weatherman became famous for, which is these all night sessions where you're, you know, essentially made to confess to all of these crimes, um, real or imagined against the revolution, against the people's struggle. Right. So Patty Hearst is claiming that she's been subjected to this alongside, um, sexual abuse, right? Sure. Exactly. The same methods that, uh, led to the CIA believing that the Chinese and the North Koreans had unlocked the secret of rewriting the human brain. That's exactly how their methods were described after Korea and after Vietnam. Exactly. Now, Maybe we save this for we can go deep on, on Patty Hearst, but how much of her story you choose to believe is really up to you. And I'll, I'll make one comment. Patty Hearst, as a senior in high school, seduced her math teacher um, and got her to move it and got him to move in with her after she had graduated high school before college. So Patty Hearst had demonstrated a pretty high level of agency. I had not been familiar with that part of the story. That's interesting. Yeah, nobody likes to talk about that. Um, So the SLA flames out. They all get surrounded, and they all get um, they all get surrounded, and they all get killed, burned to death um, in a house in a house in LA. And so this is happening within the context of the broader flame out of the counterculture, right? Obviously, this is all happening in California. Meanwhile, um, there's another group under Randy Levisur, Ray Levisur. That's Robin Banks and doing actions in New England. Again, a little bit more serious, a little bit more effective version of the SLA. Similar cult-like dynamics around um, around couple, around a few couples who are, you know, the term we would use today is polyamorous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, forming these kind of pseudo cults, pseudo guerrilla groups. But what you also see is another trend that I want to talk about, which is the introduction of opiates to the American underclass. And this is heroin was essentially a, a rich art, you know, a rich bohemians drug. Until the war in Vietnam, right? Right, yep. So all of these guys start coming back with heroin. You know, this is Frank Lucas famously importing heroin into the, uh, you know, into the United States in the uh, in the caskets of American soldiers coming back from Vietnam. Right? Well, this was really one of their first opportunities to send our troops into an area where there were grow fields just around the place. You know, this was a new and unusual battlefield for the U.S. in that regard. So it really opened up the war as import option here. Exactly. So you start to see, this is when you start to see heroin really push out of Baltimore, push out of New York and into the broader American underclass. And this is where you start to see the first uh, vestiges of deindustrialization. You start to see really the post-war settlement start to come apart in, in real speed and with real consequences this is when you're starting to see, you know, factories closing all throughout the Rust Belt, right? But here's a fun one. 
we're coming to the end of the line of, of the American takeover bank robbery, right? Where it's pretty much the exclusive purchase of lunatics, of burnouts, of political radicals, right? Sure. We, it sort of evolved from this sort of uh, violent, ambitious, sort of romanticized smash and grab culture to really the unhinged dregs, uh, political terrorists who don't actually have a political cause, as you said, burnouts at this point. Exactly. Okay. So, and I already know the answer to this. So you and I talked a little bit before the show, but it, let, let's go for your audience. What happened in Norco, California on May 9th in 1980? Gosh, is this the last thing on our cheat sheet we talked about here? Where are you driving with this? This is, this is the second to last thing on, on our little outline here. Yeah. Uh, it was the uh, North Hollywood bank robbery. Right? No, no, that that's later. That that's in 1997. Okay, um, so, so Norco is kind of the the proto North Hollywood, right? And okay, and this yeah. is where I want to bring I want to bring the thread of the 60s 70s burnouts, right? Sure. Um, along with the kind of broader, um, more apocalyptic kind of version of American culture. So these guys in Norco, a uh, couple of friends, you know. The one guy uh, got only got involved because they had a third brother. So there's two brothers that get involved in this um, along with – actually, there's two pairs of brothers, the Delgado brothers and the Harvin brothers, along with a guy named George Wayne Smith. Uh, Christopher Harvin and George Wayne Smith are kind of the, the big bullies, the big, um, the big drivers within – this sort of micro click of, of preppers of small time drug dealers. And they're also kind of subscribing to this weird mix of prosperity gospel, um, millennial Protestantism, and, um, just for lack of a better word, hip, hippie dregs, right? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so they're kind of combining this with the kind of nascent survive American survivalist movement, right? So mm-hmm. these are the types of guys who in the seventies are carrying katanas, doing karate. You know, they, they like to go in, into the Canyon and build pipe bombs. Right. Right. Yep. So, so these guys get all tooled up and try to take a bank in Norco, California. They end up fighting a running gun battle with the police, California highway patrol, um, San Bernardino, San Bernardino County sheriffs. Um, and again, you know, I, I said this before, and I don't want to turn this into a discussion of criminal firepower, right? But they had the cops well and truly outgunned. You know, three guys with shot, three of them had shot, or two of them had shotguns. One of them had an HKG3, one of them had an HK93, and another had an AR15. So these guys are basically armed up like an, like what we would consider an entry team. Right? Yeah. Yep. And they're shooting it out with these cops with 357s and 38s. So they actually take these cops to task and they luckily they only managed to kill one of them. Um, you know, they run a fight a running gun battle for a couple of hours. Eventually helicopters get, get called in. Um, you know, the cops had to basically take the force response out multiple levels until they got guys who were armed enough to go toe to toe with these rifle wielding psychos for lack of a better word. 
Um, and I want to read a quote here. Suspects pulled far ahead of the pursuing police officers and stopped to ambush them as they caught. So this is what, when I said about, again, fire and maneuver superiority. Deputy James Evans, one of the first units to come under attack during the ambush, was shot in the head and killed. The police armed with only 38 revolvers and shotguns were well and truly outgunned. They were soon joined by San Bernardino County Sheriff D.J. McCarty, who brought an M-16 shoot to the shootout in a patrol car driven by Deputy James McPherson. Shortly after he engaged the robbers with his rifle, they stopped shooting and fled the scene, running into the wooded area of Little Creek in San Bernardino. There would have been a lot more dead cops on the road if not for that weapon, said R Riverside County Sheriff's Deputy Rolf Parks. After their capture, the suspects stated that their intent was to fight to the death. So let's talk about something. Let's talk about the militarization of police. Mm-hmm. So after Vietnam, what do you have? You have a ton of hardware, nowhere, nowhere to put it, nowhere to use it. So this is when you start to see the police able to buy armored personnel carriers, able to buy machine guns, using grants and pick this stuff up for pennies on the dollar, right? Yep. What do you have that's going on concurrent to this? Well, corporate security is bringing in... <laughs> You know, the, the types of guys who would have been robbing banks, right? They're working for banks. They're working in police departments. They're working in sheriff's departments. They're working in federal law enforcement. Vietnam provided a source of cowboy, uh, for lack of a better word, cowboys and ruffians to the system. Starts to put them on their radar. So... This is when you have that era where the American feds are just as big a desperados as the guys going after them, right? And you combine that with corporate security. So all of a sudden, there's not as much money in the cash drawers. All of a sudden, there's a lot more armored car pickups, right? You have these banks that are hardening up as targets, right? Because everybody kind of knows what's going on with these radicals. So... The system is fighting fire with fire, and they're doing it in a very intelligent way. Almost like an immune response. Exactly. That, that's a great analogy. So armed robbery starts to really, really start to fall off. You get a lot of uh, bank robbers with notes, right? A guy will walk in with a note that says, I have a bomb, right? And they'll hand him a nominal amount of money with something called a die pack in it. So this is where, you know, the idiots are, are off the playing field. Um, nobody, nobody's small time is able to pull these things off. Um, the political radicals are either all dead or in prison. And all this really culminates. The last big heist happens, of course, in North Hollywood, California. So North Hollywood shootout. Two guys, Larry Phillips Jr. and Emil Modestrano. And, and I want to talk about a little bit about their backgrounds and why I think it's instructive. Larry Phillips Jr. is the son of a career criminal. Larry Phillips Sr. was a bank robber, uh, con man, general all-around bad actor. Emil Modestrano is a Romanian-born immigrant, um, comes to America, by all accounts, fits in pretty well. Um, you know, it qualifies as electrical engineer. Uh, starts a computer repair business. Doesn't really work. And these two guys meet. 
in Gold's Gym of all places. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. Right. And what what do they both like? They both like guns, and they both have overinflated sense of what the American dream is and what it can mean for them. Larry Phillips and Emil Montesorano, and here, here's again what I talked about, about fire superiority. 1993, Phillips and Montesorano rob an armored car. And again, nobody's actually sure whether they did this, but it gets pinned on them. Rob an armored car outside of a branch of First Bank in Littleton, Colorado. A couple months later, they're arrested in Glendale, California for speeding. Subsequent search of their vehicle after Phillips surrendered a concealed weapon found two semi-automatic rifles, two handguns, more than 1,600 rounds of rifle ammunition, 1,200 rounds of pistol ammunition, radio scanners, smoke bombs, IEDs, body armor vests, and California license plate. What are they charged with? Conspiracy to commit robbery. <laughs> and here's the, here's the crazy part, just, just to show you how asleep at the switch law enforcement can be. Most of the property, other than the firearms, was returned to them. Hmm. And seemingly, the system loses track of these guys. Right? Curious, that. A a little bit, right? So in 95, they hit another Brinks armored car outside Los Angeles, killing a guard. And in May of 1996, they hit two uh, two Bank of America branches in the San Fernando Valley. At this point, they're known as the high-incident bandits uh, due to the weaponry, the violence. Um, and, you know, there's a, pa- a clear pattern of escalation that nobody in law enforcement really seems to find or really seems to take notice of. So Phillips and Matasaranu, and this is one of the most iconic memories of, of 90s television up, up there with the first Gulf War, um, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's impeachment, uh, OJ and the White Bronco. So these guys are well and truly tooled up. And in many ways, they represent the apex and the final expression uh, of, all of, the, of all of the trends we've been talking about. Two guys from two different parts of the American underclass. Larry Phillips was born there. Mata Serrano en- ended up there. Um, they tool, and these guys are smart. These guys are violent. They tool up wearing pretty much full homemade body armor suits. Larry Phillips is covered pretty much head to toe in pistol armor. Montesorano about the same. Montesorano's got a trauma plate sewed into the sewed into his vest. So before they enter the bank, they had sewed uh, sewed watches into their sewed watches into the outsides of their jumpsuits. Um, and, you know, again, these guys are loaded to the gills on phenobarbital, ephedrine, and some other drug I can't pronounce. Just uh, all kinds of hopped up on homemade cocktails. Exactly. Well and truly hopped up. And they walk into the bank, and this is where they start to encounter some of those corporate security, uh, corporate security things that I was talking about. They can't get the bulletproof door open without shooting into it. Right. And meanwhile, the bank had been operating under um, a change delivery schedule that was being changed regularly. So all the casing that they had done changed, unbeknownst to them. So what does that leave them? That leaves them short on their target 
Um, they had estimated that about three quarters of a million to $1 million would be in the vault when they went in. It's a lot less. Phillips gets frustrated, starts to shoot at the money they can't get. Meanwhile, cop is just driving by, minding his own business, not necessarily looking for them. Takes a position outside, and then all hell breaks loose. These guys get into a running gun battle, exchanging fire with the LAPD, who is well and truly outgunned. And mind you, this is after SWAT, but this is before patrol rifles, right? This right. is before pretty much every cop had an AR-15 pretty close, right? Or right. at least closely available, at least in the supervisor's car. Um, so the cops are basically taking the positions all around the streets, and they're quarantining these guys. They're closing the net. Meanwhile, there's a gun store kind of within the net, right? Within the blo- a couple block radius. So th- this is this is a funny thing. Uh, a little little diversion, just to, just to show you how friendly your neighborhood government is. So a couple officers run into a gun store and basically, you know, commandeer a couple AR-15s, a couple magazines. As will happen, yep. As will happen. Not only does the city of Los Angeles never pay for the guns, they, ne- they never even get used because by the, by the time that they're employed, things had already fallen apart. So these guys are exchanging gunfire for 44 minutes, which is a famous made-for-TV movie about, about the incident. Um, Phillips, his gun gets shot out from under him. Um, another of their AKs jams. Um, so Phillips is in a running gun battle. He's surrounded. He's getting peppered. He's got the helicopter overhead. And this is one of the most iconic moments of the shootout. Pretty much right about the same time as a cop decides to go for the headshot. Phillips puts a gun under his chin after having the gun shot out from his hand. Um, so, you know, Phillips has been hit like 15 to 20 times. His hand's shattered. He's got multiple broken, broken bones. He basically decides, well, time has run out. Now, every action that Larry Phillips took up until that point said that he had every intention of surviving and winning and fighting his way out until all of a sudden he couldn't. Phillips puts the gun under his head, pulls the trigger. Phillips is down. Montesorano, meanwhile, keeps fighting, keeps driving, keeps exchanging fire. Um, until he attempts to hijack a car from a passerby. (laughs) And again, another fortunate coincidence that helps law enforcement. This truck, for whatever reason, has an immobilizer. Phillips or uh, Montesorano can't figure it out, can't get the truck started. Um, So he's, um, again, engaging the cops um, around this truck. And LAPD SWAT is on the scene and they're engaging back with rifles, back with long, um, back with heavy guns. Um, so they notice that center mass shots are not having the desired effect. Right. And so what do they start to do? They start to bounce rounds into Modest Aranu's legs. Modest Aranu finally gets up again, hit over a dozen times. Um, and again, just, just to show the, the level of which, the Los Angeles Police Department protects and serves. Under dubious circumstances, LAPD claims uh, Montesorano was fighting them. He's essentially allowed to bleed out while screaming, just shoot me in the head um, for, again, about another 10, 15 minutes. Um, his family eventually fights a series of unsuccessful lawsuits against the LAPD and against the city of Los Angeles um, for Emil Montesorano 
um, basically being allowed to bleed out and die on the scene. And this is where you start to really have the police gun up their response to high incident stuff. Uh, patrol rifles in, in supervisor cars and radio cars. Um, the banks get to the next level on die packs, limiting the amounts in cash drawers um, where you know the drawer can only have five grand in it and then everything else is, is dumped into a safe. So corporate security has well and truly kind of figured out where the vulnerabilities are once these guys are already in the door. You have this combined with the police able to muster a response, um, able to surround you faster than you can get away. Um, You always see in the media the guys setting a timer, right? The the time gets a lot shorter from about 10 to 15 minutes to three to five minutes um, where you have to be out out of the kind of first dragnet if you want any hope of getting away. What do you also have? Going on in the background, you have the movement against money laundering. So cash starts to really stop being a key part of our day-to-day transactions. You have debit cards. um, You have electronic funds transfer. So you don't need large cash transfers as frequently anymore. Um, So you start to move to a cashless, the quote-unquote, move to a cashless society is, is another thing that's going on, you know, in this undercurrent. And then, what do you get? Another war. And this one seemingly providing for a permanent war. Talking, of course, about the global war on terrorism. All of this is happening within the larger larger confines of the victory of neoliberal capitalism over global communism. Right? So, the 90s were an interesting time, right? Where... The system didn't really know what to do with itself. It had to kind of figure out what its next move was. World Trade Center attacks kind of give them that, right? So See where I'm going with this? Yes. But oh, I don't want to do this, but we do have to wrap now. Um, would you be interested in doing a part two or a brief follow-up? Absolutely. In a week or two? Absolutely. Yeah, we, okay. we let, I feel like we left a lot on the table, so we should... We, uh, we did. We definitely need a part two for this. Yeah, we're going to have to. So let me leave this with a teaser. Please. One thing that I haven't talked about, I mean, we've talked about their ability to buy guys in, right? Just mm-hmm. from the broader class perspective, um, we, we've kept it very high level, very trends and forces on this. Um, start keeping it to the big moving pieces of society. But I want to posit a theory to you that they start to get really good at finding these guys who are smart, who are good with violence, who have that mindset of wanting to impose their will on other people. And they start to identify them proactively as opposed to nailing them to the floor after they become a problem. So I want to, the last thing that I want to say on this special forces. SWAT teams, um, special detachments, plain clothes, anti-crime. You start to really see opportunity 